Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm here today with Suzanne Spradley. Welcome back from the uh, Labor Day weekend, Suzanne. Um, we're on this podcast, as we usually are, to break down some of the issues surrounding the Republican efforts to repeal and replace, or at least modify, the ACA at this point. Um, we had some interesting news as we came back into the office this morning relating to the Senate parliamentarian, and that is the person who controls the reconciliation process within the Senate, and it has apparently ruled over the weekend that the end of September is the absolute drop-dead deadline for the reconciliation bill that went through the Senate that was voted down earlier that we've talked about on previous podcasts. Can you tell us just a little bit about that, Suzanne, before we get to our primary topic today? Right. This is very interesting. But the so the, reconcil- the 2017 reconciliation process was the uh, process that was going to be utilized to push through a GOP repeal uh, bill on the ACA. And they had, uh, as we know, we went through the process that uh, occurred and it was none of the amendments uh, passed. They were all voted down, but there was still some thought that you could still pull something, uh, you know, rabbits uh, out of the hat and still come up with another amendment that could potentially have make it through that reconciliation process. But now there's a time limit placed on the ability to use that process and that bill for 2017. So really effectively what that means is they must move on to bipartisan approaches if they can't get a GOP uh, bill through um, and have it pass the GOP in the Senate. So that Uh, certainly looks unlikely at this point, and it's really a good segue into our discussion today where we will talk about the next bipartisan effort that's uh, being done right now. Um, Right. So exactly. With all that's going on with the Senate, they have to tackle tax reform next. They have to get through um, the budget bill and and deal with the deficit by the end of the month. And now DACA as well. And now DACA, as well as Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. So there's a lot going on in the Senate. Um, seems unlikely they'd go back to this reconciliation bill when it was defeated already, and they've already spent so much time on it. But look at, let's look at what's happening this week in the Senate on health care reform. It looks like the Senate Help Committee is going to be hearings, uh, holding hearings on a bipartisan ACA stabilization bill. Really quickly, the Help Committee, that stands for the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, And it looks like these hearings will be held on September 6th and 7th, and they're going to involve uh, insurance commissioners and governors from the states as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what those might look like? Yeah, so the Senate Help Committee, just as some background, the chairman of the Senate Help Committee is Lamar Alexander, and he had said that he wanted to fix the ACA by starting first with a limited bill that will just stabilize the ACA markets, and we know that really means the individual market. Um, but during the repeal debate, as we, we were just referring to, we saw how deeply divided the GOP was and, and will continue to be. And so we don't know how this will affect the bipartisan appro- approach. Uh, because it is bipartisan, uh, supposedly if we lose some GOP members uh, to vote on the bill, that we could pick up some Democrats and still be able to pass some type of a stabilization bill. There is a round of hearings on the stabilization this week and another round next week. Um, But something that's very interesting to keep in mind is reinsurance, which is one 
way in which it has certainly been discussed to stabilize the markets. And, and I won't go into reinsurance now, but that apparently is off the table in these hearings. And so we won't be hearing um, about a reinsurance program, which really effectively helps insurers cover the cost of expensive enrollees. And so it helps stabilize that risk for the carriers when um, they don't know who's going to be walking in their door and requesting a product based on their health status. So that's apparently off the table. So they're going to have a more limited discussion in these hearings. But Senator Alexander has said that any 2018 stabilization package that they pass must include the cost-sharing reduction payment stabilization. And so the goal there is to try to get something in place for the 2018 open enrollment period, keeping in mind that the carriers have to sign contracts with the federal government by September 27th in order to sell plans on the marketplace in 2018. So that certainly puts a deadline on these efforts. Right. So as usual, we're going to see some deadlines coming soon. And so we'll see a, a rush to action here. When I think about hearings, I think about witnesses and star witnesses. Who will be the witnesses at these uh, hearings this week? Well, this is, is, I really wish I could watch these hearings. It's going to be so interesting um, because we will hear from five governors, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, Steve Bullock of Montana, Bill Haslam of Tennessee, Gary Herbert of Utah, and John Hickenlooper of Colorado. See if you can say that quickly. Um, but, looper. <laughs> there you go. But interestingly, um, Governors Kasich and Hickenlooper have just released their own GOP uh, bill, uh, GOP, excuse me, their own ACA proposal. And so you're starting to see some uh, approaches bubble up from the state, which makes sense because they are on the front line of, of dealing with the ACA issues. And they will actually be discussing the, discussing their proposal at a Joint American Enterprise Institute Center for American Progress event that's occurring on the 8th. And so I, it is smart to include, again, the governors and the insurance commissioners. They are closest to the problem. They really have an eye for what's happening at the state level. But what's really going to be interesting to watch are the members of the health committee. And it because it is included with so many of the, the outspoken actors that we saw during the most recent GOP debate. You've got, and as, as well as other just outspoken actors generally. So you've got Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and Susan Collins from Maine. And those were two, along with Senator McCain, that voted against that skinny replacement bill. That was the last defeat uh, of the GOP's approach. You also have Rand Paul from Kentucky, Al Franken. Tim Kaine, who is uh, from Virginia, who's obviously was Hillary Clinton's running mate. And then you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and we all know generally where they stand on these issues. So if the HELP Committee can really get over the hurdle of, of having a bipartisan support on a bill, you then, the next hurdle is going to be the House. And it's not clear whether uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan will bring the bill to a vote. Um, so some say that if it appears that the markets could collapse, and that the GOP, the Republicans, would be blamed for that collapse, then we may see Paul Ryan acting and bringing the bill up for a vote, but otherwise uh, it's questionable. Right, but it is an interesting cast of characters in the HELP Committee there, and it would be an encouraging sign, I would think, if they could actually come up with some type of proposal that all of them agreed on. Absolutely. that would seem to indicate that the rest of the Senate and then going into the House um, that whatever their differences are perhaps would be resolved because this group already 
resolve some of those issues. Such diverse interests, yes. Right. If they can come together, there's hope. So perhaps some hope there. Didn't the help committee, though, didn't they have an earlier meeting or, or hearing earlier in the year on this very issue? They did. And, and that's, uh, you know, we can certainly look to that to see what occurred in terms of witness testimony, questions from the Senate, Senate help committee. Um, but back on February 1st, which was obviously a very different time frame uh, than what we're in today, they held a hearing on the individual health insurance market. It was titled Obamacare Emergency, Stabilizing the Individual Health Insurance Market. Uh, and it, at the time, we were still looking at repeal and replace. And it focused on the idea of not repealing the ACA without a simultaneous replacement. And it looked through stabilizing that individual market through policy issues such as including um, a less rigid essential health benefit requirement, so reducing those mandates, streamlining those special enrollment periods, shortening the grace periods for individuals who fail to pay premiums on time. Again, that's trying to kind of clean up some of the bad actors, uh, modifying cost-sharing reductions, and then pushing it to the states to give them more flexibility in how to deal with some of these issues. So we'll likely to see some of these same concepts um, come up in the hearings this week. So, right, different world back then in January than we're seeing today. So, but some of the same things, themes coming through. Um, but let's talk about the instability in the insurance market. I know it would be very difficult for us to sit here and identify the specific problems. Um, if we could do that, maybe we could lend a hand to the help committee and to Congress generally. Uh, but let's talk about some of the generalities, some of the issues that are coming up in the, in, in the in individual market. Well, certainly one of the issues that has always been a concern under the ACA is that the insurers can't predict what their enrollment will look like for a particular product. And so they raise the premiums to adjust for the unpredictability. And when I say they can't predict what enrollment will look like, that looks, that looks at just uh, not only uh, for the number of enrollees, but it also looks at the ability to adjust the rate for known health risks. So since the ACA eliminated the carrier's ability to rate a product based on health status or pre-existing condition, the carriers are obviously going to increase, take a conservative approach, and make assumptions that are going to favor them rather than an assumption that could potentially lead to bankruptcy, which none of us want. So when there's a risk that can't be identified, they make assumptions and they increase the rate to cover that risk. Um, apparently, also, enrollment hasn't been steady, steady for the carriers in terms of the makeup of the enrollees. And so, whereas we thought over time the carriers would be able to predict with enough certainty what the makeup of individuals would be signing on to the products, apparently that's not true. And it's been somewhat unstable for them. Um, and now you see that the Trump administration is going to defund outreach into uh, to uh, to gain interest and, and to get the word out about enrollment in the exchanges. Um, you've certainly hear from some that say the government should be in the business of marketing uh, their services. But on the other side, you can see that outreach is necessary to kind of drive enrollment. There are some pockets in the U.S. where uh, they don't necessarily look to the news daily and they need some type of outreach effort to, to draw them in. So. In my view, there's nothing that's preventing the carriers from doing that. If it's going to benefit them, ultimately, they certainly market other products in other markets. I don't know why um, they would not include their own outreach, but uh, uh, um, there's certainly some outreach to be done. And then we've also seen that the Trump administration has shortened the duration of the open enrollment period. And so many people say that that hurts enrollment because obviously 
If there's a shorter time frame, you've got to be quicker on your feet to get in and make sure you get in timely. And those that are sicker are going to make sure that they get in timely. Whereas those that are healthier may procrastinate, may not be as attentive to when that timeline time deadline is. And so if we do get sicker people enrolling, that affects the rates ultimately. Right. So some unpredictability there, some difficulty perhaps in looking towards the future and with respect to the open enrollment periods. But you were just going there. Let's talk about rates. What does all this do for rates? Well, first you have to understand that there are parameters set under state insurance laws to avoid insolvency with carriers. And so the states take it very seriously. They oversee and govern uh, carriers in terms of how they rate their products. Obviously, what we don't want to happen is a carrier offering a, a health insurance plan um, and, and collecting premiums and then going bankrupt and not being able to cover those claims. So for consumer protection reasons, you do have states uh, with a very close watchful eye over those carriers and really preventing them from arbitrarily cutting their rates just due to political pressure. They want those carriers to remain solvent. They want them to price their products accordingly so that they can remain profitable and not pull out of the market. However, it is true that we are seeing rate increases in 2018, and part of the result of the rate increase is because the coverage is, is becoming less attractive um, when uh, the, we saw the, rate, the prior rate increases. And when that happens, you start to see some of the healthier people pull out, and, and only the sicker people remain in some of those markets. And so, again, that's obviously a bad circle that ends up in driving up the cost even more. But secondly, there are the cost-sharing reduction payments, and those certainly play a role in the rate increases that are occurring in 2018. If there is not enough assurance for the carriers to price their products that would include those payments from the federal government, that will, we will see an effect uh, on the rates accordingly. Right, and the cost-sharing reduction payments, I know we've talked about that in the past, but that's help once you are actually in a plan. So we've already paid premiums and the federal government is helping someone with um, a co-payment or a doctor's visit payment, right? That's a little bit different than the, pre than the original premium um, payments. That's to... true. That's true. Although it does, the premium payments do go into effect um, and they allow a carrier to price their product uh, cheaper. And so what, let me back up for just a moment and explain. We've talked about this on prior podcasts, but it's important to really understand this because it does affect the entire market when you have instability related to these payments. So the subsidies help the low-income individuals and families, those making less than 250% of federal poverty level, manage those deductibles and coinsurance, as you mentioned. Um, what happens is the carriers are, receive those payments directly. And when they receive those payments directly, they can turn around and price a product less expensively for a richer product. And so whereas, uh, say, Joe Smith buys a product that normally would have a $1,000 deductible, the federal government payments allow him to have a product that's this is just by example, has a $200 deductible. So he gets a richer plan for a less expensive um, premium cost. And so it enables those that are in, uh, in lower wages be able to buy a plan that actually covers their cost while the federal government's kicking in that additional dollars to make it uh, co not cost prohibitive. What happened was the GOP filed a lawsuit against the Obama administration contesting its authority to make those payments because they had not been appro appropriately appropriated, I should say properly appropriated. 
Um, and the judge agreed because that was true. They had they had appropriated funds for the premium uh, subsidies, but not for these cost sharing reduction payments. And so correctly, the judge agreed with the GOP, but they stayed their opinion uh, pending appeal so that these payments would not stop. We then saw a change in administration. So now you have the Trump administration who would have to be the, the ones making the appeal uh, to stop these payments or to, to uh, the appeal would actually be for the payments to continue. Um, certainly, Congress can take care of this by appropriating the funds correctly. Um, so there is an easy fix on Congress side. Um, but effectively, and the Trump administration has said that they will continue to make the payments for a period of time, but they haven't. We don't know for certain how long those payments will continue. So it's instability remains in the markets. Carers do not know what the Trump administration will do going forward. And so we are left uh, with seeing some premium increases to make up for that instability. So apparently, most commissioners have asked carriers for two sets of rates. And they've directed them to allocate all of the cost-sharing-related cost increases in the price of their silver plan on the exchange. And this is a, an attempt to shift the burden of those cost increases back to the federal government because, again, the federal government is um, picking up the cost for the premium subsidies on the silver plan. So some insurers and the rate filings have even detailed that incremental costs that are attributed to the failure to fund these cost-sharing reduction payments. And so you can see very clearly where the rate increases are coming from this instability. But these estimates, they vary widely by carrier to carrier. And so um, this just shows the, the uncertainty, what the uncertainty of these receiving these payments is doing to the market. You see it affecting some carriers much more broadly than it affects other carriers. Right. So those cost-sharing reduction payments are really a, a hot button politically right now. And as you've described, can be very complicated and also lead to this uncertainty. Um, and so that's perhaps one reason that we're seeing increase in rates for 2018. Uh, but what else can be done here to stabilize the insurance markets? Yeah, and, and actually I want to add something to that last uh, point. Uh, when we talk about not being clear on the rates, uh, whether these payments will come in from the federal government and therefore the carriers are increasing their rates, what we've heard is 20% into 2018 without um, assurances of those payments being made. What's, what becomes also an instability is being able to not being able to judge who that's going to affect. So, so Joe Smith may continue to enroll even with a 20% increase, but we don't know where, whether Mary Jane will enroll. So they, they, it's very difficult for the carriers to know what their enrollment will be with right. the increase in these rates. So moving forward now, other ways that we can stabilize the market, we've talked about the reinsurance is apparently not going to be included in these hearings, although I wouldn't say it's off the table altogether because it's certainly reinsurance pools are certainly one aspect of being able to stabilize the individual market and, and pick up those sicker individuals. But I think we'll largely look to what's been somewhat discussed in the past. So we'll look to talks about allowing states to offer more flexible products with fewer essential health benefits. Um, the concern there, the debate there is... If, if a carrier offers a less rich plan, for example, a, a very bare bones plan, um, there's concern that individuals will buy that product not being clear on what it is and then be in a situation where they don't have coverage when they actually need it. Now, this is where you see the division between the two parties. The GOP would say, um, you know, let's give people the freedom to choose the plan that they feel they need. The Democrats would say uh, they take a little bit more of a paternalistic approach and say the federal government really needs to step in and make sure that they're taken care of 
and that they are choosing products wisely. So one sees that more freedom in being able to choose, one seeing it as we need to help make them make those choices correctly. So there is certainly a division there on those essential health products. Um, we will also hear about smaller fixes like widening the age band rating from three to one to five to one. The purpose there is to drive down the cost for those young, younger individuals who were hurt by that narrow age, age band rating. Um, and again, it's presumed that the younger individuals are also healthier. And so you would attract more young, healthy people into that risk pool, which will help drive the, the cost down eventually for everybody. Um, one of the other fixes could be to eliminate the HIT tax, the health insurance tax, which is directly um, passed on to the consumer. Uh, and that's uh, supposed to return in 2018. So that's a fix that could be made. Um, so, uh, so many of the things that have already been discussed, as well as some of those uh, items I just mentioned. Right. So what about the House's bipartisan approach? We mentioned that as a next step, sort of after the Senate Health Committee gets going here. Is that going to be similar? It's similar in many respects, although it goes beyond just the individual market. So on the House side, you have a group of 43 centrist Republicans and Democrats that call themselves the Problem Solvers Caucus. And they have come up with a list of fixes for the ACA that they agree upon. One of them being, yes, they want a mandatory appropriation of those cost-sharing reduction payments. And again, the idea is it's going to stabilize that individual market. Those carriers will then can be assured of those payments coming in and keep their rates down. Uh, secondly, a state stability fund, and that's giving money to the states, letting them be innovative in the way that they want to approach the uh, in unstable individual market, whether it be making payments directly to individuals to help them pay for their premium costs if they've gone up, giving money directly to the carriers to incent them to be in the market, um, some type of reinsurance program. So there's a number of different things they can do with the state stability fund. They've also looked at, on the employer side, there's bi bipartisan um, approval for them to increase that employer mandate from 50 to 500 and also change the full-time work hours from 30 to 40 hours. So there's some good news there for some employers, and we, we look to the House to hopefully move on that. Uh, repealing the medical device tax, again, that scene is just being passed along to the consumer and increasing the rates of, uh, accordingly. And then allowing um, some different changes to the 1332 state innovation waivers. Again, the idea is to give states more flexibility in how they want to approach this whole issue of the ACA and driving enrollment, but keeping costs down. Right. So many of the same themes and ideas that perhaps we've been talking about over the last six months reemerge here as we go forward in a more piecemeal effort to modify the ACA. It seems like that's sort of the direction we're heading particularly with this reconciliation bill deadline that we mentioned to start off uh, from the parliamentarian in the Senate. Um, so, but either way, it seems like the first order of business and is going to be to try and fix the individual market. We've talked about that in the past, is that being the primary problem um, with respect to our healthcare delivery system in the United States. Uh, but it seems like that's going to be first with moving on to greater ACA fixes after that. Um, and perhaps that's a place where we'll start to see some bipartisan support as we go forward. What do you think, Suzanne? I think so. And just as a final reminder, when we talk about that individual market, remember we're talking about 7 or 8% of the entire U.S. population who is covered by some form of, of insurance, whether it be government-funded or um, privately funded. And so, again, we're talking about trying to fix a very narrow aspect of the whole health care payment system. The employer market remains stable. 
Uh, we still hope to see some uh, some burdens, some administrative burdens eased in the future. But right now, the, the real emergency is to fix that individual market, and uh, that can ultimately affect all markets. And so, um, as as most of you out there in our podcast uh, hearing world are employers. Uh, just know that uh, hopefully your time is coming to make it a little bit easier on you, but you're in a good market right now and in a good place. Right. So we've got to put our attention on that individual market and get it fixed. Right. Well, thanks as always, Suzanne, for sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, as we like to say on our podcast at the end. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Chase. Thank you.